0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter nine. Picking back up where we left off, in John's Gospel. In chapter nine. We'll look there in a moment beginning in verse 1. but We're in a section of John's gospel that began back in chapters 7 and 8 and particularly in verse 12 of chapter 8 when Jesus declared himself to be the light of the world and held himself out to be the light of life. And he made that declaration during the feast of tabernacles and i don't know if you remember uh, jordan's vivid description of the area in which jesus was standing when he spoke these words and the way that the temple was lit up with the lamps and where the lights were so tall and so so bright it said that they lit up the entire city at night and that brilliant light was representing God's glory, representing God's presence, representing God's salvation, representing God's guiding word, representing God's salvation to the entire world and a salvation that would extend to the ends of the earth. And in that context, in that place, Christ stood up and said, I'm the light of the world. And in our text this morning, Jesus, he's going to declare again that he's the light of the world. And it's in the context of what we understand to be the sixth sign in John's gospel. John, he very carefully selects seven signs, seven miracles. From all of Christ's ministry, seven signs to include in his gospel, and they're all directed at identifying Jesus and pointing to his identity as the Messiah. And he does so with the aim, it's the aim of his entire gospel that we would see Christ and that we would believe upon him and that we would live. And this morning as we begin in chapter 9, we're going we're to focus on verses 1 through 12, but it… It's impossible to look at this text without at least referencing points in the rest of the chapter because in verses 1 to 12, questions are raised and the stage is set for what will turn out to be the most significant encounter of a man's entire life when he comes face to face with the Son of God. So let's look there now. In John chapter nine, beginning in verse one. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which, trans- which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors of those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. Brothers and sisters, pray with me again. Father, again, as we've asked many times already this morning, we ask again that by your Spirit you would do for us what you did for this man and that you would lift up Jesus the light of the world in our eyes so that the result would be the same for this for us as it was for this man Lord that we would declare with him Lord I believe and so that the result would be the same that we would worship Lord, exalt Jesus. We ask this in his name, amen. This morning's outline is simple. I really have only two points. Really it's two questions that I, I think are raised by the, the text and the first point, the first question is the longest. Maybe two questions in one, but the first point is this Why this man and why this way? God is clearly at work doing something, but why this man and why this way? The second question, it'll be shorter at the end of the sermon. But the second question, second point is this, as the light of the world is held out to us through this sign, through this miracle, what specifically in the sign are we supposed to see? What are we supposed to see when the light is held up in front of our face in John 9, one through 12? As the works of God are put on display, it's held up before our eyes the work of God is displayed in this man, what does John want us to see? What are we supposed to see? It's a simple outline but I think the answers to these questions touch on some of the deepest questions that we face in a fallen, sin-torn world, I think these questions Questions are important because the answers hold out hope to us as we see who Jesus is and how he truly fixes what is truly wrong with us. So that's, that's where we're going. It's a simple outline, but let's con- consider first this morning the question, why, why this man and why this way? Look again with me at verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. We know very little about this man, but what we do know is significant. The details that John gives us are significant. He gives us the most important details of this man's life. He tells us about the condition in which he was born, which was physically blind, was born with a disability, was born with eyes that didn't work. Because of that, he would experience various things in life with a greater degree of difficulty than had he been born with sight. For example, John, John tells us what this man's life is like presently. The man, he says, is a beggar. And in that day, there was really not much else he could have done given his condition. But John also, he tells us about this man's encounter with the Lord Jesus. And he tells us about the destiny of this man as a result of that encounter. But upon encountering this man, the disciples, they they asked Jesus in verse two, a very real and visceral question. In verse two, they asked, Rabbi, who sinned? This man, was it his parents that he, that he would be born blind? The, the assumption is that since, since this man is experiencing this hardship, since he's experiencing this suffering, surely somebody caused it. There's a reason, right? I think almost every mention I've ever heard of this text is referenced back to Job and Job's friends and their error in assuming that the suffering and hardship that we experience, that, that it's surely a result of something sinful that's been done. In other words, the idea is that you're, you're suffering because you deserve this. The assumption, it's, it's, it's that surely since he's undergone, undergone such a difficult life, since, since he's experiencing this disability, someone's done something wrong, either he or his, his parents, because God wouldn't afflict him in this way if somebody hadn't sinned. Who's responsible? And just as God corrected the error of Job's friends, here, here again, God in Christ is correcting the error of his disciples in verse 3. Now, he doesn't tell them that a person's suffering is never the result of their sinful desires, choices or actions, but he tells them that in this case, no, it was neither this man nor his parents. So while it's true that there are instances, and in, in the case of a previous healing in John chapter 5, where there seemed to be the indication that sin was involved in that particular instance of of suffering. It's true that there are instances in which our suffering can be the direct result of our sinful choices and our sinful desires and our sinful actions. But in this instance, he says, that's not the case. It's not the case with this man. And one of the things we we learn from the book of Job, which Jesus, his disciples clearly missed, is that we ought not to assume that a person's suffering must mean they've done something wrong. And so it's very important that they understand in this, in this case with this man, he didn't do anything to deserve this. His blindness, his suffering is not some kind of divine payback from God because he did something wrong. And it, it's not God keeping him in check with an illness. Rather, Jesus explains to his disciples, there, there's, there's actually something greater, something deeper, something, and I, and I mean dare we even say, glorious at play in this man's life. And think about this for for all the times in our lives that, that we've looked at suffering and asked God why, and we don't get the answer. Jesus actually tells him here why this man was born blind. Because just as his blindness isn't a result of sin, it's also not for no reason at all. Jesus holds out purpose in this man's blindness. Look again at verse three. He says, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's blindness, disability, subsequent suffering and poverty that this man was born into and experienced. Jesus says actually was God's plan, God's design, God's will, God's purpose, so that the works of God would be displayed in this man specifically through his blindness. God's intent was to display his glory in the very thing that those who encountered him understood to be the source of his suffering. The source of this man's weakness was going to be the focal point of God's strength as the works of God would be displayed in this man's life. This man's blindness, a lifetime of blindness, is about the works of God being put on display for all to see the works of God put on display. You know, the, the, the works of God in John's gospel, we already said, that they're, they're, they're so important. The signs that he's included here, they've been specifically chosen and intricately woven throughout the narrative by John and they serve this great purpose in his gospel. And Jesus has said repeatedly that the works that he performs are the evidence that the Father has sent him. He rebukes those following him in John chapter 6 saying that they should have understood the work when he fed the 5,000. He's going to perform another work here in chapter 9, which again is going to be misunderstood and ignored, and just shortly after this in chapter 10, the Jews, they're going to ask Jesus uh, a question, say, "How, how long will you keep us in suspense, Jesus? If you're the Christ, just tell us plainly. And Jesus, he'll answer them, I told you. And you do not believe. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. This is the whole point of John's seven signs. The works of God that Jesus performs in this gospel, they're all pointing to Christ's identity. They're all testifying of him. The works of God displayed throughout John's gospel are to tell you who this Jesus is is. And they're here to validate everything he said and claimed about himself to be true. This so is what his ministry and his works were about. Look at verses four and five. The urgency and the purpose of his life while he's still with them. Listen, he says, after, after telling them this man's blindness is about the works of God being displayed in him, Jesus says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. They want to sum that up. God's work on display is the goal of the light of the world while he is in the world. So now, back to this man. Why why this man? Why why this way? Why a life of poverty and suffering? Is this the kind of thing that you ordain, God? Why why this way? Christ's answer is that God's work will be put on display in this man. Perhaps if we think broadly and theologically, we could say it this way. Why this man? Why this way? Because he was a chosen vessel of God's mercy. Why this man? Why this way? Because this is a man whose life was to be a canvas upon which God would paint a glorious picture that displays the radical need of man and the magnificent provision of Christ why this man why this way because this man was chosen to be a vessel of worship to the living God a vessel in whom the works of God would be displayed so that the light of the world would be seen and that in seeing Christ we and countless others throughout the past 2,000 years would believe upon him and live Jesus says, you're right. There's a reason for his suffering. But it's not the reason that you think. It's not the reason that seems like it should be obvious. This man's life belongs to God. He was created for God. And God's purposes in this man are good and glorious though unseen and known, unknown by everyone until this moment in John's gospel, in this man's life. Totally unseen, totally unknown. It's not easy to apply that to the suffering that we see around us, to the suffering that we see in our world. It's not easy to apply that to our own suffering. There are many here this morning, many here listening, who are suffering. You have family and friends who are suffering or have recently suffered or will shortly suffer. But I want us to think about this question for a moment because it's a very real question, the the question the disciples ask question why. We give the disciples a hard time. We call them Job's friends, pointing out their unfaithfulness, unbelief. They're asking a very real question. Here at Grace, we we try as, as best as we can to stay aware of each other's struggles, we, we try to weep with those who weeps, but weep, but sometimes you're experiencing something that no one else knows. A struggle, a loss, a trial. Many have experienced, even in the past months, loss, deaths, sickness, tragedy, heartache, turmoil, and sometimes the most raw and earnest question that we can muster to ask God on our knees through tears is, God, why? You've been tempted at times to wonder whether your particular trial or suffering, you, you, you think things, God, did I do something? Whose sin is behind this? thing that we're experiencing? Did we mess up somewhere? Or maybe we, we, we sanctify that in our minds a little bit and we'll ask it this way. We'll say something like, God, have I stepped out of your will? What is the point of the thing that I'm experiencing? And we know, we know, we know in our heads the Bible tells us Job's friends got it wrong and Jesus he tells us right here that this man's suffering wasn't about anyone's sin but we're still tempted to ask the question because we don't always get to understand why I want to try to make an observation regarding what Christ says about this man his suffering God's works displayed in him. I want to try to make an application for us in light of our own lives when we're faced with struggle, suffering, and we don't know why and we're asking ourselves the same question that the disciples are asking Jesus. And we're having a hard time taking verses like these which talk about God's plans and how great they are and God's purposes and not just receiving them in a cold, calloused, formulaic way where we know God has a big plan in all of this, but that doesn't really help me right now. Where do we look when we don't know where to look? The observation is, is this. The man was blind from birth, and his blindness was not due to God's absence in the moment, but God's presence and his purposes. That's what Jesus said. God was active in this man's life from the beginning. God God was there. He was right there. Go back a little further. Do you, do you think this man's parents, when they realized what this would mean for their son and his life, do you think they wept together and asked themselves the same question the disciples asked here? God, God did we sin? Is this our fault? Where were you, God, when our son was born? God, why our son? And why this way? The answer that Christ gives is that God was right there. He was intimately and intricately involved in the and maturation of this child while he was still in the womb that's psalm 139 god was present in in each moment as he was born and present as his parents came to realize that he was blind and present as they were crying out to god and saying why why Jesus, he tells his disciples here that there, there was, a, was a purpose. It's so that the God who was present and with this man when he was born, that same God would one day come to this man and speak with him face to face and would place his glory hands upon the eyes that Jesus himself had knit together in the womb. It was God's will that this man see, but not just with eyes in his head. He could have had that his entire life, but God's plan is that this man would see with spiritual eyes and that others would see with spiritual eyes as the works of God were displayed in him, and none of that plan was known or understood to anyone, anywhere. Except God until this moment you see we, we can talk about the sovereignty of God and the providence of God and the purposes of God so much that they become truths like you read out of a dictionary cold unhelpful unapplied But what we see here is something deeper than a general, distant, detached, cosmic sovereignty. This is detailed, individual providence. The exercise of God's sovereignty over the minute and the most significant details of the life of an individual. This man was not a random face to God just in a crowd. You are not a random face to a distant God. Your suffering is not unknown or unseen. God had ordained every circumstance and step of this man's health of his life, his social status as a beggar, the, the parents to whom he was born, the place he was born and grew up, the time of his birth, every time he stumbled as he walked blindly down a rocky path, every course of action that he had ever taken, in the entire course of history, this man was led to a single point in the universe on planet earth in which his life would intersect at a crossroad where he would come face to face with Jesus, with the very God who had ordained every moment of his life. So, so what, are you, what are you saying? Are, are we just, just the textbook Sunday school answer to suffering? Just trust God because he's got a plan? We know the technically correct answer but that's not usually the problem we're facing when we're experiencing suffering. Often we know that to be true. We can mentally affirm the truth of God's sovereignty and His goodness. And we ought to remind ourselves and preach those glorious truths to ourselves. It's, it's not the truth that we struggle with. The part that we struggle in is how can this be part of the plan? Why Why me? Why us? Why him? Why her? Why my mom? Why my dad? Why my son or daughter? Why, why this way? We, we know, Romans 8, that God causes all things to work together for good to them that love God, but, but we can't see how. We struggle to see how this could possibly fit into God's plan. So when someone, when we're suffering and someone comes and tells us that it's all part of God's plan, we look back at them blankly and say, I know. I know. And it's unhelpful. The instance with this man is the exception, not the rule. Most of the time we don't get the answer to how this or that particular experience can possibly bring glory to God. Job didn't get the answer. So what do we say to that? Do we coldly tell each other, trust God, he's got a plan, even though in one sense it's absolutely true? kind of truth that is meant to be helpful but feels like a knife plunging into your heart no at least we don't give each other the truth like that there's something else going on that's equally true and we do tell the truth that we don't know We don't know why this particular thing is happening any more than the disciples knew this man's circumstances until Jesus told them. But also, we can look at God's Word and see that there are examples given to us in the Scriptures where it's not clear how or why God is at work in a particular instance of suffering but is afterward vindicated in His righteousness and goodness. And the greatest example of this, it's not this man born blind in in John chapter 9. It's the cross of Christ. Because it was there at the cross where the greatest pain, the greatest suffering, the greatest evil in human history, the murder of the Son of God, an unfathomable process and outcome for everyone involved except Christ Himself. His disciples had no category for what was happening or what was going to transpire, but it's there that that Peter tells us in Acts 2, it it was actually the predetermined plan of God. Even the most inexplicable and horrifying event in human history. They didn't see it. They didn't understand until the risen, glorified Jesus showed up and explained it to them. We can't say why this or that particular thing took place or why this or that suffering took place, but what we can say is that that brother or sister, I don't know. I don't know, but I will weep with you And in time we can look together and see that God has demonstrated definitively that in the worst possible evil, in the worst possible suffering in human history, he was at work in every detail to secure the greatest good and the greatest joy for his people, and the greatest glory for himself, when Christ became our substitute, when he died under God's wrath and rose from the dead. Why this man, why this way? God had purposes for this man's life greater than being born with sight. His desire, his purpose, his plan was that in and through his life, the light of the world would be seen and that in seeing we would believe on Christ and live. I want to move on to our second point, the actual sign itself, because this man will see. The other question is this, as the light of the world is held out to us through this sign, this, this miracle, what specifically in the sign are we supposed to see? What is it that John intends for us to see as the light is held up before our eyes and the work of God is put on display in this man? What are we supposed to see? Look with me again beginning in verse 6 as as we come to the the actual sign, the actual miracle itself. Verse 6, it says, When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, "Go wash in the pool of Siloam," which translated, "which is translated, sent." So he went away, and washed, and came back seeing. So the man is healed. For the first time in his life, he's able to see. He washes as Jesus instructed him. He comes back seeing, and. At the outset here, we're, we're beginning to see the, the works of God on display in this man. The light of the world is, is shining as this man returns seeing. So, so what is it that, that we're supposed to see? What's interesting here, John, he, he again explains to the reader what a particular word means. John's done this before. He's done this earlier in his Gospel here. He, he explains that Siloam means sent. So that when Jesus is talking to him, he he tells him, go to the the pool called sent. And that might not seem very significant until you notice that Jesus himself, he says in verse 4 that the works he's doing are the works of God his Father who sent him. And that still might not seem that significant until you realize that there are at least 40 other instances in John's Gospel or more where Jesus is described as or state, states explicitly of himself that he was sent from the Father. Like it's stated so much that you realize it's it's actually a theme in John's Gospel. Jesus, he's the sent one in John's Gospel. He's the one who came and dwelt among us, sent by the Father. And here, Jesus, he tells the man, he says, go and wash in the pool called scent. This is packed with meaning and intent by Christ. I want to read to you from D.A. Carson's commentary on this verse. He points out that, you know, while we can have all kind of discussion about the possible reasons Jesus used the saliva and he made the clay and what that might mean as far as actually putting the stuff on his eyes. We can talk about that, but Carson says it's pretty clear why John is highlighting that Jesus told the blind man to wash in the pool called Scent. He writes, Saloam is a transliteration for the Hebrew word Saloa, which is itself derived from the verb Salah, which means to send. It says, Isaiah speaks of gently flowing waters of Shiloah. He says, the suitability of drawing attention to Siloam may be uh, dependent simply on its name. As it was called sent, so Jesus was supremely the sent one. Moreover, he says, in Isaiah 8.6, the Jews reject the waters of Shiloah. And just as they reject the waters in Isaiah 8 the Pharisees they're going to reject the testimony of the man who was healed in the waters called sent here in John 9 The point is that John is not simply providing an interesting detail about the translation of a word when he records Jesus and his instructions to this man Rather Jesus constantly is calling himself the sent one and he spits on the ground and he makes the clay and he puts it on the man's eyes and then he tells him, now go wash in the pool called scent. He's communicating something about himself. It's, it's the question that arises later in the chapter in verses 29-33. through 30, 33. It's the question over where is Jesus from? Who is this guy? The Pharisees say they don't know where Jesus is from. And yet... While the religious rulers, the Pharisees, they're just like in Isaiah 8, they're gonna reject what's being said in their spiritual blindness. And it's the man who was blind his entire life who will say to them, It's an amazing thing that Jesus has done the work, he's performed the sign, he's done the miracle, and yet, even though the light of the world is shining, you don't know where he's from. You don't, you don't understand. Jesus is communicating something about Himself. When He tells this man, go to the pool called sent. You say, sent by whom? Sent, sent from where? Again, the man who was healed, He answers the question of verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's the answer Jesus gives. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. That's what He communicates over 40 times in this Gospel he's been sent from God. When the light of the world is held up through this sign, the work of God is displayed in the man born blind. What are we supposed to see? Who are they seeing when they look at the light? The one sent by God to be their Savior. The Messiah. The one who can heal their spiritual blindness and will do so. And can do, through, can do so through His life, death, and resurrection. You see, this, this whole incident, it's not simply about giving a blind man physical sight. He healed this man. He could see. But that's not what this is about. Jesus is not only telling them that He's the sent one, but He's painting a picture of the spiritual condition, the spiritual need of man. You see, our text ends in verse 12 with the people asking this guy who was healed, where did Jesus go? And he says, I don't know. And then you don't hear from Jesus again until the end of the chapter. He disappears until the end. But the rest of the chapter before Christ, before he steps back in, The whole rest of the chapter, it's about this formerly blind man being questioned by the Pharisees who can see physically, but are blind spiritually. And at the end of this chapter, Jesus, when he steps back in, he's going to highlight the spiritual reality pointed to in everything that's happened. He'll say he's come so that that the blind would see and so that those who see would be made blind. And he condemns the Pharisees as guilty because they have the light of the world right in front of them. They claim to see, but they're still blind. And the whole point is that they don't have an eye problem. They have a Jesus problem. The problem is that if Jesus is the sent one, If He is who He says, then His spiritual diagnosis of them is correct. It's the diagnosis that they're spiritually blind and spiritually dead. More blind than a blind man with mud covering his eyes. Even when the light of the world is standing right in front of them. That's what this entire episode illustrates. The blindness of men who were looking square in the face of the one the father sent to be their savior and the sight that Jesus offers those who come to him by faith this is the spiritual problem and it's a spiritual need and that's what god is putting on display in this man's life who was born blind but it's not just them it's not just them we've come to it it's us what what about you What about you, just as this man's physical condition was pointing to a spiritual need, so also the physical remedy points to the real needed spiritual remedy. We need to be washed. In the waters of the pool whose name is sent. And for those of us who have gone to that pool, we need to be reminded again, of this glorious news. You see, Jesus' aim for the man born blind was not to get him into the water in verse 7. It was to get him on his knees in verse 38 where he proclaims, Lord, I believe. And it says he worshipped Jesus. Jesus sent this man into the water so that he would embrace Jesus as the sent one. This is why John included this sign, this, this work, this miracle at this spot in his gospel. It's so that everyone who would ever read or hear this text would experience what this man experienced. It's, it's so that we would believe and live. It's so that you and I would end up with him in verse 38 saying, Lord, I believe is so that you and I would end up in verse 38 worshiping Jesus with the man who had been born blind because you realize, as Byron prayed earlier, you were born blind. But that in Jesus there is light. There is cleansing There's the assurance of His promises because He is the one sent by the Father to redeem His people. He's the Messiah who was sent by His Father to cleanse His people, not in the waters of sin, but by His blood that was shed on the cross, dying in our place as a substitute who was raised from the dead and is alive today, offering the same cleansing to all who would come to Him, all who would turn from their sin and trust in the sent One. He'll give you His righteousness. He'll cleanse you. He'll reconcile you to God. You see, this is is the most important issue of your life. And we close with this. It's the issue that every person who has ever heard the name of Jesus and the Gospel has ever faced. It's the question this blind man and the religious leaders who questioned him face. It's the glorious truth that John is shouting from the rafters when he points out, oh, by the way, that word Siloam, it means sent. The question is this. Is Christ who He said He is? And if so, will you love and trust and follow Him? Will you believe and live? Let's pray. Father, again, we ask the same thing. That you would open our eyes to see the greatness, the worth, the provision that you've made for us in your Son. Exalt Him in our eyes, Lord. Hold up the light of the world so that we would see and believe and live. We ask it in Jesus' name.